Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. That I would be going off to Trisha's parents' lake house, that we would be enjoying fun in the sun with boating and skiing and tubing and just relaxing. But then the pipe happened. The week before vacation, we were turning on the outside spigot to the house, and I could hear the water rushing. And so I ran outside to see if the faucet was on, and sure enough, there was a little bit of water trickling out of the hose, but not a whole lot. And so I tried to unravel the hose more, get all the kinks out to see if I could get the water flowing. Well, I pulled it all straight, and the water was still just trickling out. And I thought to myself, oh no, oh no, I hope a pipe did not break in the basement. And so I ran back in, and as I was coming in the front door, my wife yells at me, there is water coming through the ceiling in the basement. It was coming out the lighting fixtures, which is not a good thing, just so you all know, and through the cracks and crevices in the drywall. And so I wanted to start by sharing with you a couple of my vacation pictures, uh, not of a cruise or of a boating trip, but of uh, reality. So this is... This is the beginning, and uh, there's my son Caleb. He has a mask on, which is foreshadowing of our next picture. Here's the next picture of our basement. The, that's before. This is the after. That's the after of our basement. So we ended up having to take down uh, even the drywall to the right of that as well because it was all covered in water and was saturated and was molding, and so we had to take it down. Now, I don't yet have a picture of the restoration uh, because it is still in process, but that is my goal to take this ruins and turn it into a great and fantastic restoration. Last week, Pastor Jonathan started us into the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, and he hears about the ruins of the walls in Jerusalem. And God lays on his heart to go and to restore these ruins. Nehemiah Nehemiah responds to the report of, of the ruined walls of Jerusalem with weeping and mourning, not only for days, but for months. And in fasting and prayer, Nehemiah goes to the Lord, saying, if In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. That's what happened. Israel rebelled against God, and so God brought his discipline on his people by bringing the empires of the world to conquer them and disperse them throughout the world. Verse 9, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, which they were starting to do, Though, you are, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there, which is Jerusalem. 
And so God has already started returning waves of Jews home to the promised land. And now Nehemiah goes to petition God to bring him back to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So let's start into today's passage. I actually want to back up one verse. Start with verse 11 of chapter 1. And then we'll just start by reading through verse 4 of chapter 2. So this is Nehemiah speaking in Nehemiah 1 verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, This is four months after Nehemiah receives the initial report of the condition of the walls in Jerusalem. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, where wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. No, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Let's pray. Lord God, my hope today is that you would give us your heart. Your heart for the brokenness in the world. Your heart for the ruins that are spread throughout humanity because of our own sin and rebellion. Give us your heart of grieving and mourning and longing. And Lord, give us courage and strength to pursue the restoration of the world that you are actively accomplishing in your creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the water started pouring in my basement and Trish and I were down there with a shop vac trying to clean it up, I remember turning to her and saying, well, now I know what I'm going to be doing on vacation. I didn't say it with a smile at that time, just to be clear. But I was sad. I was sad, not for good reasons, honestly, for selfish reasons. I was sad because I knew that my schedule was going to change, that I wasn't going to rest and relax like I hoped for. I wasn't going to be able to go boating, and I knew this was going to be expensive, and I knew it was going to be a lot of time and energy, and so I was sad for, honestly, very selfish reasons. Nehemiah's sadness is not for selfish reasons, but for selfless reasons. It was a godly sorrow. Nehemiah's sadness of the heart, which is how the king terms it, was because the walls of Jerusalem were a big deal for the people of God and for the glory of God. If you remember, the land of Canaan was the promised land that the Lord God promised to his people. It was a place where they would receive his blessings, a land flowing with milk and honey, but also a place that would display the glory of God to the world around them. And yet now, that land lays in ruins. 
And the capital of that land, the, the, the epicenter of it, has no wall, leaving it open to ridicule and to shame and to attack. It's kind of like if you had a house with no doors. Could you imagine having a house with no doors? How comfortable would you be sleeping in that house at night? Not very comfortable, would you? You probably wouldn't decorate it with fancy items because you'd be afraid someone would come in and steal those items. In the same way, Jerusalem was an unsecure city. It was the laughing stock of the cities around them because you weren't really a city until you had walls around you for protection. But then we get to chapter 2. Again, four months after the original report to Nehemiah that the walls were broken down. And the king says to Nehemiah, he asks Nehemiah, his cupbearer, he says, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then it says Nehemiah was very afraid. Now, why would it be that Nehemiah would be afraid when the king says, why are you sad? Why would that make Nehemiah afraid? Well, there's a couple reasons. One reason is this, is that he could actually be killed for being sad around the king. It was kind of company policy that they had to be happy around the king, joyful around the king. The kings of that time had killed people for a lot less than being sad. And so Nehemiah's life was at stake, even showing his grief to the king. But despite the fear, Nehemiah lays it all out for the king. Verse 3 again, if you want to look back with me. It says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. This is showing his devotion to the king. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The ruins of Jerusalem broke Nehemiah's heart. Let me ask, what contemporary ruin breaks your heart? What in our world grieves you deeply? Is it the 3,000 babies aborted every day in the United States? Is it the destructiveness of alcoholism in families in Wisconsin? Is it the elderly that are often neglected in our society? Is it the children who are surrendered to foster care? Or is it the students in the local high school that don't know Jesus? Is it the the poor that are denied basic human rights in third world countries? Is it the brokenness of marriages and families in our area? Is it the unreached people groups of the world? What is it that grieves you? What ruins of the world make you weep? You know, I think there are times where we try to put all of that out of sight, out of mind, at a distance so we do not have to feel it. But what Nehemiah teaches us is that God calls us to feel the brokenness and ruins of this world and to feel it deeply and that would motivate us into actions. And so what grieves you? What ruins of this world makes you weep? Friends, no matter how massive the ruin seems, what the Bible teaches us is that God has a master plan of restoration. He's seeking to make all things new again. 
And what we are reminded of today is that God is not doing this on his own. God has chosen by his grace to enlist you in this grand and glorious story of redemption. Not to simply live a life of ease, of comfort, and of self-consumption, but for you to be an intricate part of God's glorious and mysterious and wondrous plan of restoration. And so the question is this, how do we pursue restoration? As individuals, as a church, how do we pursue restoration of that which is ruined in our society? Especially when those ruins seem so big to us. Well, Nehemiah 2 lays out a pattern for us in pursuing the restoration of the ruins in this world. First, we will see the plotting for restoration. Then persevering for restoration, and finally, partnering for restoration. So plotting, persevering, and partnering for restoration. First, plotting for restoration. Look at verse 4 with me. We'll read through verse 6. It says, And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. If you remember back again in verse 2, Nehemiah shows sadness of heart. And we said one reason this made him afraid is because he could be killed for that. But I think another reason why the king's question of his sadness of heart made him afraid is because Nehemiah knew what God had put on his heart to ask the king. This is an audacious ask of Nehemiah to ask the emperor of the empire for a leave of absence for a time. You see, it says here that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. A cupbearer was a very important position. It would have only been given to someone that you trust. You see, the purpose of the cupbearer was to drink the wine and to eat the food before the king did to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. That was one way that people often killed off the emperors and the kings is they would poison the food. And so Nehemiah was a trusted person to the emperor. And yet he asked to have this leave of absence. The other reason why this is such an audacious ask is because years prior, uh, the people of Israel were starting to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and the king issued a decree ceasing the building of the wall. And so this is, is Nehemiah asking the king to reverse the decree that had been issued many years before. And so Nehemiah is asking really big things. And then again in verse 6, we read, And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. You know, it's so interesting that this detail is included, that the queen is sitting beside him. Why why did Nehemiah find that important to include in his story? Well, if you study the commentators, what what they point out is that if you are an emperor, uh, you are a busy man. And so you probably are not around your queen very often. But at this specific point in time, the queen was with the king. We don't know how intimate of a setting this was, but they were together. They were eating dinner. And at this time, Nehemiah says, I'm going to make it known the grieving of my heart. 
It had been four months again since Nehemiah had heard of the ruined walls. Four months of grieving and praying and plotting and planning to go and rebuild the walls. And for whatever opportunity, because the queen was there, it seemed right to ask now. Maybe she was more compassionate. Maybe he knew the king would be on his best behavior and seem charitable around the queen. Whatever it was, it was a strategic plan of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah shows his sadness of heart. The king asks what is wrong. Nehemiah prays to God for strength to be courageous and to ask. And so he lays before the king what is making him sad and asks the king to give him a leave of absence to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then we read, so it pleased the king to send me. Friends, this is a major victory for Nehemiah and for the people of God that the king of the conquering empire would send him to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. But what's so fascinating is Nehemiah doesn't stop there. You know, if I was Nehemiah, I'd be like, hey, can I go rebuild the wall? And as soon as the emperor says yes, I'd be like, okay, I'm going before he changes his mind. Nehemiah goes further. Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governor of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And then the second ask, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Not only does Nehemiah ask for a leave of absence, he asks the king to send letters with him for his own protection, telling others that he has permission to go and rebuild these walls. But not only that, he asks the king, will you supply the materials for this restoration? And it pleased the Lord to do so. God gives Nehemiah everything he needs through the most powerful man in the world. And then you look down to verse 9, the second half, and we'll get to it in a little bit. But it says, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Nehemiah doesn't even get all that he asked for. I mean, Nehemiah shoots for the moon and he gets it. He gets more. Nehemiah gets an armed escort of the emperor to go and rebuild these walls. It's almost as if God is winking at him and saying, Nehemiah, just be faithful. Just be courageous. I will provide everything you need and more for what I have called you to do. Friends, Nehemiah reminds us that we do not ask God for too much. We ask God for too little. Our dreams are not too big. They're too small. When we step into the wreckage and ruins of this world to bring the restoration of God, he delights to bless our fearful, meager efforts. And it is no problem for him to utilize the most powerful king in the world to make it happen. You know, we experience this every year at Jacob's Well Church. Every year, the elders go on a retreat, and we create what we call BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. These are goals that we set that we think are, quite honestly, unrealistic, okay? And then every year, we get to the next year, and God blows our socks off. I still remember we had this BHAG of acquiring a building in 2017, okay? You know how the story ends, I think, right? Because you're sitting here today. 
But it's 2016, okay? Middle of the year, nothing on the horizon. We're going to build a church. It's going to cost tons and tons and tons of money. It's going to take years for us to fundraise it, to build it, all of those things. There's no way we're getting in a building in 2017. And so we pretty much, at least I did, pretty much gave up on this big, hairy, audacious goal. Because God doesn't have to give us everything we ask for. But then the middle of the year, this, this building becomes available. And not only do we, do we not get into a building by 2017, we get in it a month and a half before 2017. God blesses those things of restoration that he calls us to. Or you could take a goal that we had, just, just a few people sitting around saying, saying, what is our goal? Well, let's, how about we plant two churches in 10 years? That doesn't seem realistic. Eight years later, God has used us to daughter two churches, a granddaughter church, and Jason Steger, who was here last week, talked about the church that he planted, and so God has blessed our socks off. Now, with each of these, we did not just simply sit back and wait for God to do his thing. We planned, we plotted, we prayed, and God provided above and beyond what we anticipated I'm guessing you've heard the saying, if you fail to plan, what's the next part? Plan to fail, right? There is nothing unspiritual about planning and plotting restoration in this world. Wherever your heart breaks, God is calling you to restore ruins. God is calling you to prayerfully, to prayerfully plot and plan and pursue this calling. And the Lord delights to provide for you abundantly according to his perfect will. Now restoring does not only take plotting, it also takes persevering. Look at verse 9 with me. Nehemiah says, And I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. That still blows my mind. Verse 10, But when Sembalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. So let's look at a map. I love maps. I love getting used my laser pointer. And so Nehemiah was here in Susa. This was evidently the winter capital of the Persian Empire. Per, uh, Babylon would have been the initial or the, uh, the, the, summer, the winter location, but, but he was in Susa, and so he asked to go a, th- a thousand miles about to Jerusalem, to a region beyond the river. I love that saying. It's like a fairy tale, isn't it? The, the region beyond the river. And so he goes to the region beyond the river, and what we are told is when he gets to the region beyond the river that Sambalot, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, were displeased by this. Uh, Sambalot would have been a governor or an official in the Sumerian uh, people, which was just above Jerusalem. Uh, The other guy, Tobiah, was a part of the Ammonites. The Ammonites have historically been an enemy of Israel, and they were located just east of Jerusalem. As we read further in this chapter, we also see that uh, Geshem, the Aram, uh, was also opposing them. This would have been just south of Jerusalem. And so what we see is that there is opposition on every side from Nehemiah going back and rebuilding this wall. And the reason why they are so opposed to this is because it is a threat to them. Because God, when he was blessing Israel, he had made them a great world power. 
that had everyone underneath their authority, and they were afraid that God would do the same thing again. As we continue to read through the story of Nehemiah, what we will find is this continual opposition from outside people. They slander the Jews. They try to stop the work of the Jews. They even secretly try to meet with Nehemiah for devious reasons, whether it be to kidnap him or to kill him, we don't know. But you could imagine how tempting it would be for Nehemiah to give up, to say there's too much opposition from outside. I'm done with this. Nehemiah needed perseverance because of outside opposition. But Nehemiah also needed perseverance simply because of the size of the job. Look at verse 12 with me. After three days in Jerusalem, he says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one of which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Okay, and so here we have a map, another map of the walls of Jerusalem. And so just to walk you through what Nehemiah says here is that Nehemiah exits through the valley gate, which is in this area right here. And he's coming along this wall, inspecting it. He comes here by the dung gate. I'm not sure who named that. That's probably not the best name for a gate. But he comes by the dung gate to inspect that. Then he comes over here to the fountain gate. And it's so broken down that he can't even pass through it with his animal. And so he comes back along the wall, back this way, back through the valley gate to return home, inspecting the wall the whole time. Could you imagine what this would have been like if you were Nehemiah? I mean, you had heard about the wall being destroyed in Jerusalem, but now you had a firsthand account and you knew that God was calling you to the restoration of this wall. I mean, how intimidating must it have been for one man to go and to say, look how ruined this is. And yet God is calling me to restore this ruin. Nehemiah needed perseverance, not only because his enemy was out to get him, but because of the size of the task that God had for him. Many of you are familiar with William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in the ending of the slave trade industry in England. In the 1790s, after 10 years of battling against slave trade in England, he was tired and frustrated. And so he opened his Bible to leaf through it, and a small piece of paper fell out. It was a letter that was written to him by John Wesley before John Wesley passed. And the letter to Wilberforce from John Wesley said this. He said, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. As you know, Wilberforce persevered and again was instrumental 
ending the slave trade industry in England. Friends, if you are seeking to be part of God's glorious plan of restoration, there is one thing you can be certain of. It will not be easy. There will be opposition. The job will be too big for you. But we do not go alone. God goes with us, and he is bigger than all of those things. And so we must persevere in the power of God. And so for the restoration of ruins that God is calling us to, we must plot for restoration, making a plan, trusting God. We must persevere for restoration because it is never easy. There are always obstacles. But finally, we must partner for, verse, for restoration. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says, Nehemiah says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. I love that. He says, I didn't tell them, and they're the ones who are going to do the work. Um, Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. As I had mentioned, waves of Jews had been coming back to Jerusalem over the past couple decades before Nehemiah got there. They had rebuilt the temple. There were nobles there. There were priests there. There were Jews there. There were governing officials there. But the wall still laid in ruins. And it seems as if the people had become accustomed to the ruined walls. They were accustomed to not feeling safe in their own bed, accustomed to suffering and to shame and to ridicule of the peoples around them, accustomed to the brokenness in their community. And so Nehemiah reminds them that this is not the way that it is supposed to be. God is calling us towards restoration. This is our human nature, to grow accustomed to the brokenness around us, to grow accustomed to the brokenness of our families, to the brokenness of society, to the brokenness of our government, to the brokenness of our world, to grow accustomed to these things, to become indifferent towards them. But then God sends a voice saying, this is not right. This is not okay. Restoration is to be had. This is what Nehemiah's part is in this, saying, guys, what are we doing This is not okay. This is what the word God does to us all the time, doesn't it? I mean, we grow accustomed to our brokenness and the word of God speaks into us and says, that's not okay. That indwelling sin is not okay. It's slavery. God calls us sometimes to be that voice, to point out what is broken and say, this is not okay. We cannot just leave it be. We have to pursue restoration And so Nehemiah calls them to partner to rebuild. In verse 18, it's interesting. It says they, not Nehemiah, but they. It said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. Let us, let us. It is a partnership 
You know, the book of Nehemiah and really the Bible as a whole does not make much sense to an isolated, independent cowboy Christian who wants to do things on their own. Restoration is a community effort. It is a group project. So whether you are called to be the lead in restoration like Nehemiah, or you're called to partner to be a helper like the rest of these Jews, as we will read next week, we are called to partner together for the sake of restoration. You know, as I thought about this and how to apply this to my life and to your life, I thought of it this way. What is an area of restoration that God is calling you to major in? Because I think what God's calling us to do is to major in the restoration of one area that God has put on our heart and then minor in other areas. So for example, you take people here at Jacobswell Church who, who feel like God is calling them to start Young Life because they have this passion to reach into the public schools with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they are majoring in that. But they minor in other things. They help in children's ministry. They help with the nursing home ministry. Where has God called you to major? To, to lead the way, to bring partners in, to, to, to accomplish God's restoration? And where are you minoring, helping other Nehemiahs to be a part of God's restoration for the world? Our partnership with one another is vital for accomplishing the great work of restoration that God has called us to. But you know what? That's not the most important partnership we have. Verse 19 continues. It says, But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? There's the opposition again. Verse 20, then I replied to them, listen closely to this, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He's not saying, hey, we all, we're all for this. You aren't going to stand. He says, no, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's ultimate hope is not the partnership of his fellow Jews, but the partnership of God. Nehemiah says, the God of heaven, he's the one who will make this prosper. Nehemiah says something similar back in verse 8. He says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This theme of the good hand of God comes throughout all of the book of Ezra. If you look at it six times in the book of Ezra, we read that the good hand of the Lord of God was upon Ezra, who was going to rebuild the temple, and now it is applied to Nehemiah. And this is the hope for all of those restoration projects God is calling us to. Not only that we would partner with those in Christ's body, but that the good hand of our Lord would be upon us. In 1995, Michael McKelvin, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but Micah, we'll just call him, was an aspiring athlete until he was involved in a near-fatal surfing accident. He was life-flighted to a Florida hospital and awoke a quadriplegic in intensive care. After years of rehab, he was able to restore his use of much of his arms and his legs. But this near-death experience shook him to the core and made him realize the brevity of life. And he says, we're not guaranteed a long life. The truth is our time on earth is like a vapor. That's biblical language, so you know. 
when you realize that you are afforded an opportunity to live it differently. Through this experience, Micah sought out uh, a more intimate relationship with God and asked God, how would you want me to live to be Jesus to this world? And after spending time in African slums, he was rocked to the core because human suffering was no longer a statistic on a page, but it was people with names and smiles and sadness and tears. And as Micah processed this experience, he said this. He says, I felt like I came to a crossroads. I would either waste the rest of my life trying to forget what I saw or spend it trying to do something about it. So Micah was burdened. This was his wall to go and to restore the brokenness of this people group who were impoverished and did not know the gospel. And so he created this ministry called Vapor Ministries. You probably heard us promote it. It's the run that's coming up next Saturday. But this Vapor Ministries, I think we actually have a picture of what it looks like. This Vapor Ministries is in third world countries, sharing the gospel, sharing education, sharing clean water through the platform of soccer in many cases. And the website says, since our humble beginnings, God has accomplished much. Not them, God has accomplished much. They've been faithful, but God has accomplished it. Today, Vapor is comprised of a group of dedicated people that are partnering together financially, but also on staff to continue this ministry. Their vision statement is, we exist to glorify Christ by advancing the gospel and serving the poor. Vapor Ministries began with the vision God put on one man's heart, but it drew a partnership together to fulfill it. And in three years of this ministry, they have opened five centers. This year, approximately 4,500 kids participate each week, and over 400 people have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Micah felt deeply the sadness of his heart, the ruins and poverty and unbelief, and Micah plotted. He made plans to establish these vapor centers. Micah persevered through many trials and difficulties. And Micah partnered with the body of believers to establish and to grow this ministry. And the ruins are being restored in the slums of Africa and of Haiti to the glory of God. Let me end with this. Theologian Francis Schaeffer coined a phrase, glorious ruins by this phrase, he's talking about people. People like you and people like me. He's saying every human being is a glorious ruin. Every human being is glorious in that they bear the image of God, the likeness of God. They have the spark of the divine within them. And yet every human being is ruins because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our shame. Friends, the good news of the gospel is God did not leave us in our ruins. God did not not say, well, that's not my problem, or it's too big for me to handle, or it's too messy. Rather, the God of the universe, with sadness of heart over our condition, plotted a restoration plan. The plot was to send his only son, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to dwell on earth, to take on our sin, our brokenness, our shame, to pay for in full upon the cross, to persevere through ridicule, through shame, through spitting, and even through death, to accomplish our salvation. And who has accomplished this? God has accomplished this with his Trinitarian partnership. 
For it was the Father who plotted and planned this salvation. It is the Son who accomplished the salvation in his death and resurrection. And it is the Holy Spirit who applies and seals this salvation in our life. Why would we sacrifice our comforts, our life, to restore the ruins of the world? Because that's what our Trinitarian God has done for us. The ruins Nehemiah was called to restore was the wall of Jerusalem. The ruins Micah was called to restore was the impoverished, unsaved people of third world countries. The ruins God has come to restore is you and me. What ruin is God calling you to restore? Plot, persevere, partner, and may the good hand of our Lord be upon you. Let's pray. Lord, I confess, I get so consumed with my own life. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Lord, help us to grieve with those who are grieving. Help us to weep with those who are weeping. Help us to mourn over the ruins of this world. And then God, spur us into action. Let us go forth seeking the restoration of your world to be a part of your grand plan of redemption. And may we do so in faith and boldness and courage that you would receive all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.